0: Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of stalking and gun violence. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. June 14, 1949 was a foggy summer night in Chicago. Thick mist shrouded the waters of Lake Michigan, creeping over the sand toward the Edgewater Beach Hotel, It was nearly midnight, but music and laughter still echoed from the lobby. Meanwhile, the 12th floor of the towering resort was eerily silent. Philly's first baseman, Eddie Wakis, stood at the door to room 1297A. He wasn't the type of guy who usually met a strange woman in her room so late at night, but something had drawn him there. Before he lost his nerve, he rapped twice on the door. A young woman answered wearing a silk robe and pajamas she thanked him for coming and ushered him quickly into the room eddie barely had time to wonder what it was all about before he found himself on the business end of a rifle eddie smiled at first asking the woman if this was some kind of joke but her face was deadly serious she told him you're not going to bother me anymore then She curled her finger around the trigger. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity how does a husband and wife become killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator if there's a thin line between love and hate what manipulates our relationships into deadly results you can find episodes of crimes of passion and all other spotify originals from parcast for free on spotify this week we're telling the story of ruth ann steinhagen a regular girl turned crazed baseball fan For years, she fixated on Eddie Waitgis, first baseman for the Chicago Cubs. When the Cubs traded Eddie to Philadelphia, her obsession took a terrifying turn. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Going for your first ever run around the park.
1: Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. Is what you love about the NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money. Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly.
0: In the final months of 1929, Chicago was just beginning to feel the effects of the Great Depression, A massive stock market crash devastated the finances of the upper classes and shook the faith of consumers. Folks were nervous, but almost no one predicted the suffering that lay ahead. Ruth Ann Steinhagen was born right in the midst of the anxiety, in December of 1929. Her parents, Walter and Edith, were immigrants from Germany and traditional in many ways. Edith was in charge of all things house and home, The family lived on the north side of Chicago near DePaul University and Lincoln Park. The neighborhood might have been rough, but Edith kept their apartment clean and cozy. As the breadwinner, Walter worked in metal and plastic factories. Though we don't know how the depression specifically affected the Steinhagens, the manufacturing industry overall was hit hard. Over the next decade, millions of workers were laid off Even if Walter managed to hang on to his job, his wages were drastically reduced. It's safe to assume that like most Americans, the family struggled to make ends meet, but Ruth was still a happy and gentle child. And she was smart too. At some point in her schooling, she even skipped a grade. While the financial hardship of the Depression eased with the start of World War II, it wasn't easy to be a person of German descent. Anti-German sentiment still lingered from the First World War and soared to new heights with the start of the second. Many Germans across the country hid their heritage out of fear for their family's safety. As Ruth entered her teens, she was wracked by anxiety. She developed a fear of crowds and fixation on cleanliness. In an unstable world, she seemed to be searching for control. Before I continue with Root's psychology, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Many psychologists recognize a connection between early childhood poverty and poor mental health outcomes, such as depression and anxiety. A 2018 study in the Journal of Community Psychology took this scholarship a step further. By introducing the idea of social capital, researchers examined how a family's societal standing relates to their children's mental health. At its core, social capital encompasses the connections between people as well as the shared norms and values that make us want to help each other. Researchers found that in families with more social capital, the negative effects of poverty on mental health decreased. Unfortunately for Ruth, her family had virtually no social capital. As Germans, they were shunned. Not only did Ruth have to endure the negative effects of growing up in poverty, but she had the additional burden of belonging to an undesirable social group. Even while others were climbing out of the financial holes caused by the depression, they weren't exactly eager to help their German neighbors. Which is probably why, as she got older, Ruth felt that life just never seemed to go her way. She had a hard time connecting to kids her age. While other high schoolers were at the mercy of their hormones, Ruth had little interest in dating or sex, but that didn't stop boys from pursuing her. According to her mom, Ruth had a boyfriend at one point in her early teens, though she didn't seem particularly invested in the relationship. More often than not, the guy found himself stood up on dates, unless they were going to a baseball game. During World War II, baseball was one of the only forms of widely available entertainment. That meant the ballpark was one of the few places for Americans to forget about the war even for just a little while. Attending weekend games was a typical pastime for many teens, but for Ruth and her girlfriends, it wasn't just about the sport. What drew her and countless other teen girls across the country were the men on the field. In the 1940s, baseball players became A-list celebrities. Unlike movie stars who lived and worked in faraway places like Hollywood, athletes were easy to access. All it took was patience. After games, avid fans waited at the clubhouse door for their favorites to emerge. Ruth and her friend Helen Ferasis were often among those waiting outside Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs. Helen had a crush on pitcher Johnny Schmitz. At first, outfielder and third baseman Peanuts Lowry was the object of Ruth's affections, but that all changed on April 27, 1947. 17-year-old Ruth had gotten to Wrigley Field early to watch the pre-game warm-ups. As usual, Helen was by her side near the dugout. The players came out onto the field amid cheers and calls for autographs. When the new first baseman, 27-year-old Eddie Waitkus, turned to greet gathered fans, Ruth was starstruck. He was tall, Blonde and handsome. At the clubhouse door after the game, Ruth was more anxious than she'd ever been. When Eddie finally came out onto the street, her nerves won out. But even as she hid from his sight, she continued to watch from afar. From that point on, Ruth was in love. To feel closer to the object of her affection, she spent her time learning everything there was to know about Eddie Waitkus. Eddie had just returned from three years in the U.S. Army, battling in the Pacific Theater of World War II. One of the only things that saw him through the horrors of war was the hope of returning home to his first love, baseball. Before being drafted, Eddie showed promise in the minor leagues. After a successful tryout during the team's 1946 spring training, he earned a spot on the Cubs' roster. During his first season, Eddie proved he was just as good at bat as he was on base. By the 1947 season, he'd secured his position as starting first baseman and earned a prime spot in the batting lineup. Baseball experts agreed that Eddie Waitkus' star was only beginning to rise. However, his skills on the diamond weren't what caught the attention of his many female fans. Not only was he famous as any movie star, He was stylish too. Off the field, he wore well tailored suits and perfectly shined dress shoes. On top of all that, he was smart and sophisticated. Eddie spoke four languages, including Latin. He liked the nightclubs as much as the next ball player, but was just as likely to be seen at the opera. As far as Ruth was concerned, Eddie Waitgis was perfect. Infatuation quickly turned to obsession. Ruth devoured every detail of Eddie's personal life, a rather impressive feat pre-Google. She found out his parents were Lithuanian immigrants and set out to learn the language. Eddie was born in Boston, so Ruth ate baked beans every day. Ruth and Helen still frequented the clubhouse door at Wrigley Stadium, too. While they waited, the two joked about knocking out their crushes and whisking them away to get married. But Ruth was still painfully shy and whenever Eddie actually appeared, she continued to hide. She sought refuge in her bedroom, which she adorned with reminders of Eddie Waitgis. She saved every photo of him that she came across, even framing one to keep under her pillow at night. The place was a shrine to him. She spent hours gazing at the pictures, dreaming of a world where they were in love and always together. Though the two had never actually spoken, Ruth talked about Eddie like he was her boyfriend. When she started setting a place for him at the family dinner table, her parents grew concerned. They convinced her to see a psychiatrist, but Ruth reportedly only went to two appointments before stopping. After that, she simply didn't tell her parents about what she imagined she and Eddie were up to. She went for long walks through her neighborhood. In her mind, Eddie was right there with her, chatting all the while. They never spoke out loud, but she could hear him just the same. Soon, she discovered she could be with him whenever she liked by summoning him in her thoughts. Ruth lived in this blissful fantasy for the better part of a year. But during that time, real life carried on. Ruth turned 18 and graduated from high school, She had professional aspirations. She wanted to work for a living, specifically as a secretary. Soon after finishing school, she took a job in downtown Chicago as a typist for an insurance firm. For a time, Ruth seemed to love her job, but the anxiety that had plagued her for years reached a tipping point in November of 1948. One afternoon, she grew increasingly upset until she finally got up and walked out of the office, giving no explanation to anyone. She roamed downtown for hours before finally going back home. When her mom asked what happened, Ruth told her that her boss looked too much like Eddie. Unfortunately for Ruth, no one recognized this event as the red flag that it was, Many studies have shown a link between anxiety disorders and psychosis, a mental state in which thought and emotion are so impaired a person loses touch with reality. A 2012 paper by psychologist Dr. Niklas Grana focused on the symptoms most likely to be present during the period just before the onset of psychosis. He found that an increase in cognitive anxiety was a very strong predictor particularly for women. Ruth had shown many symptoms of cognitive anxiety over the years, which only increased after her infatuation with Eddie Waitkus. The incident at work was only the latest example of her growing issues. Already in a precarious psychic position, Ruth was nowhere near equipped to handle what happened next. Barely a month later, news broke that Eddie Waitkus was being traded to the Phillies. Soon, he would be nearly 800 miles away. Ruth couldn't believe Eddie would leave her like that with no warning. Her devastation quickly turned to desperation. Eddie was the love of her life, and she wasn't going to let him go so easily. Coming up, a cold dose of reality sends Ruth further into her dream world.
2: I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.
0: Now, back to the story. Just before her 19th birthday, Ruth Steinhagen's carefully crafted fantasy world came crashing down around her. The object of her affection, Chicago Cubs first baseman, 28-year-old Eddie Waitkus, was being traded to the Philadelphia Phillies. Though she had taken to hiding her thoughts and feelings about Eddie from her parents, Ruth still shared plenty with her friend Helen Ferasis. Helen had accompanied Ruth to many baseball games and spent countless hours waiting with her to get a glimpse of Eddie at the clubhouse door. Together, they'd spent hours daydreaming about their ballplayer crushes, but Helen had no idea how serious Ruth's feelings had become. When Ruth talked about marrying Eddie, it wasn't just a girlish flight of fancy. In her heart, Ruth truly believed she and Eddie were in love. Which meant Eddie wasn't just leaving the Cubs, he was leaving her. Like a jilted lover, Ruth cried in her room for days. Mixed with the heartbreak was an intense sense of urgency. She needed to get to Eddie before he could go. Ruth dried her eyes long enough to find an apartment on Lincoln Avenue, closer to Wrigley Stadium than her parents' home. One night, she announced she was moving out to be closer to Eddie. Because she was 18, her parents were powerless to stop her. Ruth wasted no time turning her new apartment into the same shrine her old bedroom had been. The walls were plastered with hundreds of photos and newspaper clippings of and about Eddie. She kept every piece of memorabilia, including over 50 ticket stubs. If she'd hoped Eddie would sense her love and change his mind, it didn't work. Within months, he was 800 miles away and playing for the Phillies. As winter melted into the spring of 1949, Ruth's moods turned dark and cold. She couldn't shake the hurt and anger of abandonment. Eddie was all Ruth wanted in the world. As her desperation grew, one thing became crystal clear. If she couldn't have him, she had to make sure no one else could either. Statistically, very few instances of stalking turned physically violent, but for those that do, researchers have pinpointed some potential reasons why. The answer is what's called the catathymic process described in the book Stalking, Threatening and Attacking Public Figures. By May of 1949, Ruth was firmly in the incubation phase, At the start of the catathymic process, an emotionally charged conflict occurs in a relationship. In Ruth's case, her imagined relationship with Eddie Waitkus had been devastated by him being traded to the Phillies. As a result, she was forced to recognize they would never be together in real life. Through the incubation period, one becomes fixated on the idea that the only way to resolve the internal conflict is to commit some act of violence, usually against the other person. For Ruth, killing Eddie felt like the only way to deal with the idea of never being with him. The incubation period can last any length of time from days to years. The second phase is the violent act itself, followed by the third and final phase, relief. As Ruth's incubation period progressed, she could think of nothing other than killing Eddie and then herself. She believed there wouldn't be any peace for her until he was gone for good. She decided a gun would be the easiest way to do it, so she looked into getting a revolver. But that idea fizzled out when Ruth discovered she'd have to get a permit first to get around that, she started frequenting pawn shops where she eventually found and purchased a rifle for $21. The man at the shop even showed her how to work it and provided the ammunition. With the gun acquired, things were coming together. All that was left to do was wait for Eddie to come back to Chicago. Luckily, the Phillies would be at Wrigley in a matter of weeks. In the meantime, Ruth worked to find out what hotel the team would be staying in. Somehow, she was able to determine the Phillies would be rooming at the Edgewater Beach Hotel. She booked a room under the name Ruth Ann Burns, which she pulled from Eddie's old high school yearbook. She used an address from Eddie's childhood neighborhood in Cambridge. Even in her delusional state, Ruth was a thorough planner. She carefully crafted the details hoping they would make Eddie more likely to fall into her trap. Helen suspected nothing when Ruth invited her to a ballgame on the weekend of June 14, 1949. Even when Ruth showed up with her new rifle carefully wrapped in newspaper, Helen still didn't take things seriously. Ruth had always been strange, but never violent. The gun seemed like nothing more than a big joke. The day before the game, Helen went with Ruth to check in at the Edgewater Beach Hotel, room 1297A. The elegant resort wasn't the type of place either of them would have typically stayed. Ruth was full of more nervous energy than usual, but Helen figured she was just excited to watch Eddie play again. The night before the game, Ruth finally told Helen why she'd bought the rifle. After the innings were up, The agony she'd been in for two years would finally be over. She was going to shoot Eddie Waitkus, and then herself. The idea was so ridiculous, Helen laughed out loud. Shooting Eddie would require getting close to him, and Ruth had never managed that before. The whole thing sounded like their old jokes about knocking the players out and dragging them to the courthouse, but Ruth was deadly serious. The next day at the ballpark she could hardly stand the building anxiety her moment was drawing closer soon it would all be done suddenly all she could think about were the way things might go wrong by the sixth inning she told helen she had to leave ruth was worried about running into eddie in the lobby of their hotel seeing him too soon would ruin everything she simply couldn't risk it But there was no way Helen was going to leave a game early. So Ruth went back to the resort alone. Per her plan, she stopped at the front desk, where she asked for a bit of stationery and a pen to leave Eddie a note. She kept the message simple, saying she had something important to tell him and asking him to please come see her as soon as possible. Back in room 1297A, she checked the rifle. It was loaded and ready standing at attention in the closet. All there was left to do was wait. The game ended on a high note for 29-year-old Eddie and the Phillies. They beat Chicago 9-2 on their home field. The victory might have been bittersweet for the former cub, but he'd reached home plate twice that night and was likely flying high. It was well after 11pm by the time Eddie made it back to his room, but he and his friends planned to celebrate at the hotel bar. A bellhop caught Eddie's attention as soon as he stepped inside the lobby. Some girl had left a note for him at the desk. Good-looking and sophisticated, Waitgis could have had his pick of the ladies, especially in Chicago, the home base of his fan club. But he was known for being a gentleman. He figured the note was from an adoring fan, the least he could do was read it, even if he'd never respond. But the message he got was vague and confusing. Eddie didn't recognize the name Ruth Ann, but Burns rang a faint bell. He asked the girl at the desk for more information on the person staying in room 1297A. He learned she was a young woman, apparently staying alone from Portland Street in Boston. Hearing that, Eddie felt even more like the woman might be an old acquaintance popping up for a favor, probably money. Before making up his mind about what to do, he decided to get his friends' thoughts on the situation. They agreed the situation seemed shady, advising him to call the room first. Up on the 12th floor, Ruth awoke to the ringing of her telephone. She had already gone to bed, thinking her plan had failed. She might've assumed she was still dreaming when she realized who was calling. She was talking to the Eddie Waitkus on the phone. It hardly seemed real, but she managed to pull herself together and ask for a few minutes to dress before he came up. Eddie told his friends he had to go find out what was going on. If this person was a family friend, he'd feel like a chump for ignoring her. A few minutes after calling, he knocked on Ruth's door. Eddie might have been pleasantly surprised to see the woman who answered was pretty, tall, and lithe. She thanked him for coming even though it was late. Shutting the door behind him, Ruth went to the closet where her rifle lay in wait. She told Eddie she had a surprise for him. When she turned on him, rifle in hand, Eddie thought it must be some kind of joke. A smile played on his lips as he asked her what he'd ever done to deserve this. But it faded when he registered the icy glare staring back at him. There wasn't a hint of emotion on Ruth's face as she squeezed the trigger. Ah! Even when Eddie fell back from the force of the shot, Ruth didn't believe she'd actually done it. It happened so fast that it didn't seem real. She knelt next to him as he laid on the floor moaning, "'Baby, why did you do that?' She held her beloved Eddie's hand, feeling better than she had in years. Immediately after she pulled the trigger, all the nerves and tension drained from her. She would later describe it as the happiest moment of her life. Having completed her violent act, Ruth entered the third and final phase of the catathymic process, relief. For months, she dreamed of nothing but killing Eddie. Pulling the trigger, as Ruth saw it, was the moment her dreams had come true. Then she remembered the plan still wasn't finished. Shooting Eddie was just the first step. Adrenaline surged through her, making her frantic. She suddenly couldn't find the bullets to reload the rifle, The more time passed, the less determined she became, until eventually she gave up entirely. If she wasn't going to die by suicide, then something had to be done about Eddie, who was still on the floor, bleeding. Ruth snapped back into action and called the hotel operator. They needed a doctor in room 1297A. Eddie Waitgis had been shot. Coming up, Ruth and Eddie's lives are forever changed.
1: The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
0: Now, back to the story. On June 14, 1949, 19-year-old Ruth Ann Steinhagen carried out her plan to shoot baseball player Eddie Waitgis. Ruth intended to turn the gun on herself next, but at the last second, her nerves got the better of her. She called for help instead. When the hotel doctor and detective arrived in room 1297A, they found quite the scene a manly bleeding on the hotel room floor while a hysterical teenage girl paced in the hall. She kept telling them she'd shot Eddie Waitkus, saying his full name like it was supposed to mean something to them, but neither man knew what she meant. The doctor immediately got to work attending to Eddie while the detective called the Chicago Police Department. For a while, it seemed Ruth could have simply walked away and no one would have stopped her. Adding insult to injury, even with all her shouting, none of the other guests had come out of their rooms to find out what was happening. The whole thing made her furious. Ruth, like most stalkers, seemed to have a strong sense of entitlement and egocentricity. This means she was often incapable of understanding that others thought and felt differently than she did. Eddie was the center of her world. She couldn't wrap her mind around the idea that others might not care about him. She was still fuming when the police finally arrived. She was cuffed and taken downstairs to the paddy wagon. Somehow the Chicago Tribune had already caught wind of what happened and a photographer was waiting to snap a picture of the would-be murderess. While Ruth was taken to the station, Eddie was whisked to a nearby hospital. He had lost a lot of blood but maintained consciousness. Doctors worked quickly to stabilize him. Though the bullet had missed major arteries and nerves, Eddie was bleeding into his right lung. It was on the verge of collapse. But Eddie was young and healthy, and he rebounded surprisingly well. By 2 a.m., he was in recovery. Later, when he was alert... His doctors told him the extent of his injuries. They used the word miraculous more than a few times, telling him that if Ruth had used any other caliber of bullet, he would have died instantly. Still, it would be a long road back to health. Three days after the shooting, Eddie underwent a procedure to remove the blood from his lung. The bullet remained lodged in the muscles near his spine, His doctors felt confident that surgery to remove it could wait until his lung recovered. Meanwhile, Ruth was taken first to Summerdale Station and then to the Cook County Jail. When authorities questioned her, her story remained vague and confused. In total, she gave police nine statements, each time providing a different reason as to why she tried to kill Eddie. Because of her erratic behavior, Ruth was interviewed by court-appointed psychiatrist, Dr. William Haynes. They met multiple times at the county jail, where Ruth told him all about her relationship with Eddie over the previous two years. She told the doctor that Eddie had always paid a lot of attention to her, that they'd never spoken physically, but spent endless hours together mentally. According to Ruth, Eddie had even visited her in jail he told her that maybe she should go to a hospital, too. Over the course of his examination, Ruth seemed perfectly content with what she'd done. More than that, she seemed genuinely happy about it. At one point, she told the doctor, "'I've dreamed and dreamed about killing him, and there I was, holding him in my arms. Don't you see? All my dreams have come true.'" Ultimately, Dr. Haynes concluded that Ruth lacked social intelligence and was extremely emotionally immature. He diagnosed her with incipient schizophrenic psychosis. Incipient schizophrenia is more commonly referred to now by phrases like schizotypal personality disorder. Essentially, this refers to disorders that include elements of schizophrenia, such as paranoid ideation or illusions, but aren't severe enough to be diagnosed as such. Even in jail, Ruth remained firmly within the confines of her delusional fantasy. She still kept a photo of Eddie with her in her cell. The relief of completing her violent act made her giddy, blissful even. But eventually, it came time for Ruth's day stay in court. On June 30th, shortly after Dr. Haynes presented his report to authorities, Ruth faced the judge and jury... She was well-dressed and happy as ever to see the press, telling them she was scared and excited. She also said she was sorry for Eddie's suffering and that she still cared for him. Eddie hadn't yet been released from the hospital and was brought into the courtroom in a wheelchair. When she saw him for the first time in weeks, Ruth let out a wistful sigh. It was exciting for her just to be near him. For his part, Eddie did his best not to acknowledge her. The picture of strength, he remained composed as he told the court what happened that night. Only when he got to the part about the rifle did he finally recognize Ruth's presence, pointing her out as the one who'd shot him. Because they had no intent of fighting the charges, Ruth's lawyers waived the cross-examination, Based solely on Eddie's testimony, she was indicted on the charge of assault with intent to murder. Over the course of the hour-and-a-half-long trial, Ruth showed practically no emotion. She looked away while Eddie told the story of the shooting and bowed her head when the verdict was delivered. Ruth's lawyers asked for an immediate sanity hearing, At that point, Dr. Haynes took the stand to tell the court it was his professional opinion that she needed to be committed. In his report, Dr. Haynes wrote that Ruth didn't seem to comprehend the gravity of what she'd done. On top of that, she openly talked about suicide and required constant supervision. The judge took his suggestion and Ruth was committed to Kankakee State Hospital, however, The court reserved the right to try her again if she ever regained her sanity. After Ruth was led away, Eddie returned to his hospital room. He ended up spending a month there recovering from the gunshot. Within weeks of the hearing, he had an operation to reinflate his partially collapsed lung. While he was under, doctors removed the bullet. Eddie was released from the hospital and returned to Philadelphia on July 17, 1949. He was far from recovered, though, and began to worry the shooting had cut his baseball career short. But still, he kept up a brave face for the cameras. He joked that Ruth was the only girl in the world who thought he was perfect, remarking, and now they say she's crazy. In interviews about the shooting, Eddie referred to Ruth as Baseball Annie, The term quickly caught on in the media as a name for teenage girls in love with players. In 1950, baseball reporter Stan Baumgarter wrote about baseball annies and the danger they presented to players. According to him, there were three categories of baseball annie. 1. Teens with crushes. 2. Older women seeking marriage. And 3. Con artists. Though Ruth wasn't the first lovesick fan to turn violent, her story highlighted the dangers of allowing unfettered access to young fans. After what happened to Eddie, teams started to take the threat more seriously. The Phillies started screening fan mail. Anything dangerous was immediately forwarded to authorities. Even still, the year Baumgartner published his profile, there was another incident involving a Phillies player— This time, the unlucky target was center fielder Richie Ashburn. The girl bought a box seat directly behind the dugout, shouting for Richie's attention. She became such a nuisance during the game that the team threatened to call the police. Later at the hotel, the Phillies' manager demanded security to guard his players' rooms. It was a smart move. When the girl turned up, she didn't get past the lobby before being escorted off the premises. That incident must have been a painful reminder for Eddie, who'd returned to the field by then. The Phillies would go on to win the National League that season, and on the surface, Eddie was back on top of his game. But his mind had a harder time than his body with the process of recovery. Even as he smiled and joked for the cameras, privately he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. He went on to play six more seasons, but between the physical recovery and emotional trauma, he ended up retiring earlier than anyone expected. His final season was in 1955 at 35 years old. All the while, Ruth was treated for her mental illness at Kinkakee State Hospital She was prescribed electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, a procedure in which electrodes were held on either side of a patient's head with a large clamp. A burst of electricity was sent through the brain, triggering a short seizure. Despite getting a bad rap in books and movies over the years, ECT is actually considered an effective treatment for major depression and other disorders. Though researchers still haven't been able to pinpoint exactly why or how, it's believed that shocking the brain with electricity has some effect on neurotransmitters. Research on the topic is ongoing. In addition to ECT, Ruth also participated in occupational therapy. The idea behind this is to keep patients engaged with work. Ruth did a little of everything from working in the kitchen to gardening in the hospital's greenhouse. She responded particularly well to this therapy, expressing an interest in pursuing a career as an occupational therapist herself. In March of 1952, after two years of treatment, doctors at the hospital declared Ruth sane. Because the state had reserved the right to retry her for attempted murder, she was once again held at the county jail. Meanwhile, Eddie was in the middle of spring training. When reached for comment, All he told the media was that he decided not to press charges. According to his son, Edward Waitkus Jr., the only resentment Eddie held was that she'd cost him the rest of the 1949 season. Over the years, the tale continued to grow in the media. The coverage inspired Arthur Bernard Malamud to fictionalize the events in his debut novel, The Natural. Published the year Ruth was freed, It was hailed as the first, if not the best, novel ever written about baseball. In 1984, the story made it to the big screen when the book became an Oscar-nominated movie starring Robert Redford. Though her story has become the stuff of legend, Ruth Steinhagen eventually faded into obscurity. After coming out of the hospital, she seemed to have left baseball and Eddie in the past. At least, there's no record that she ever attempted to contact him again. She moved back in with her parents and younger sister, eventually purchasing a house in the north side in 1970. Ruth outlived the rest of her family before dying in December of 2012. To her neighbors, the 83-year-old was nothing more than a recluse. No one knew anything about what Miss Steinhagen did. All those years ago. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back next week with another episode. For more information on Ruth Ann Steinhagen, we found Baseball's Natural The Story of Eddie Waitgis by John Theodore extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Scott Stronic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Megan Hannum, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon and Terrell Wells fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs.